Aesop's Fables, a new translation. Written by Aesop, translated by V. S. Vernon Jones, with an introduction by G. K. Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This book has been read by Roslyn Carlyle. Introduction by G. K. Chesterton Aesop embodies an epigram not uncommon in human history. His fame is all the more deserved because he never deserved it. The firm foundations of common sense, the shrewd shots at uncommon sense that characterize all the fables, belong not to him but to humanity. In the earliest human history, whatever is authentic is universal, and whatever is universal is anonymous. In such cases, there is always some central man who had first the trouble of collecting them, and afterwards the fame of creating them. He had the fame, and on the whole, he earned the fame. There must have been something great and human, something of the human future and the human past, in such a man even if he only used it to rob the past or deceive the future. The story of Arthur may have been really connected with the most fighting Christianity of falling Rome, or with the most heathen traditions hidden in the hills of Wales. But the word Map or Mallory will always mean King Arthur, even though we find older and better origins than the Mabinogian or write later and worse versions than the idol of the king. The nursery fairy tales may have come out of Asia with the Indo-European race, now fortunately extinct. They may have been invented by some fine French lady or gentleman like Perrault. They may possibly even be what they profess to be. But we shall always call the best selection of such tales Grimm's Tales, simply because it is the best collection. The historical Aesop, in so far as he was historical, would seem to have been a Phrygian slave, or at least one not to be specially and symbolically adorned with the Phrygian cap of liberty. He lived, if he did live, about the sixth century before Christ, in the time of that Croesus whose story we love and suspect like everything else in Herodotus. There are also stories of deformity of feature, and a ready ribaldry of tongue, stories which, as the celebrated cardinal said, explain, though they do not excuse, his having been hurled over a high precipice at Delphi. It is for those who read the fables to judge whether he was really thrown over the cliff for being ugly and offensive, or rather, for being highly moral and correct. But there is no kind of doubt that the general legend of him may justly rank him with a race too easily forgotten in our modern comparisons, the race of the great philosophic slaves. Aesop may have been a fiction like Uncle Remus. He was also, like Uncle Remus, a fact. It is a fact that slaves in the old world could be worshipped like Aesop, or loved like Uncle Remus. It is odd to note that both the great slaves told their best stories about beasts and birds. 
but whatever be fairly due to aesop the human tradition called fables is not due to him this had gone on long before any sarcastic freedman from phrygia had or had not been flung off a precipice this has remained long after it is to our advantage indeed to realise the distinction because it makes aesop more obviously effective than any other fabulous grimm's tales glorious as they are were collected by two german students and if we find it hard to be certain of a german student at least we know more about him than we know about a phrygian slave the truth is of course that aesop's fables are not aesop's fables any more than grimm's fairy tales were ever grimm's fairy tales but the fable and the fairy tale are things utterly distinct there are many elements of difference but the plainest is plain enough there can be no good fable with human beings in it there can be no good fairy tale without them aesop or babrius or whatever his name was understood that for a fable all the persons must be impersonal they must be like abstractions in algebra or like pieces in chess the lion must always be stronger than the wolf just as four is always double of two the fox in a fable must move crooked as the knight in chest must move crooked the sheep in a fable must march on as the pawn in chest must march on the fable must not allow for the crooked captures of the pawn it must not allow for what balzac called the revolt of the sheep the fairy tale on the other hand absolutely revolves on the pivot of human personality if no hero were there to fight the dragons we should not even know that they were dragons if no adventurer were cast on the undiscovered island it would remain undiscovered if the miller's third son does not find the enchanted garden where the seven princesses stand white and frozen why then they will remain white and frozen and enchanted if there is no personal prince to find the sleeping beauty she will simply sleep fables repose upon quite the opposite idea that everything is itself and will in any case speak for itself the wolf will always be wolfish the fox will always be foxy something of the same sort may have been meant by the animal worship in which egyptian and indian and many other great peoples have combined men do not i think love beetles or cats or crocodiles with a wholly personal love they salute them as expressions of that abstract and anonymous energy in nature which to any one is awful and an atheist must be frightful so in all the fables that are or are not aesops all the animal forces drive like inanimate forces like great rivers or growing trees it is the limit and the loss of all such things that they cannot be anything but themselves it is their tragedy that they could not lose their souls this is the immortal justification of the fable that we could not teach the plainest truth so simply without turning men into chessmen. We cannot talk of such simple things without using animals that do not talk at all. Suppose for a moment that you turn the wolf into a wolfish baron, or the fox into a foxy diplomatist. 
you will at once remember that even barons are human. You will be unable to forget that even diplomatists are men. You will always be looking for that accidental good humour that should go with the brutality of any brutal man, for that allowance for all delicate things, including virtue that should exist in any good diplomatist. Once put a thing on two legs instead of four and pluck it of feathers, and you cannot help asking for a human being either heroic, as in the fairy tales, or unheroic, as in the modern novels. But by using animals in this austere and arbitrary style as they are used on the shields of heraldry or the hieroglyphics of the ancients, men have really succeeded in handing down those tremendous truths that are called truisms. If the chivalric lion be red and rampant, it is rigidly red and rampant. If the sacred ibis stands anywhere on one leg, it stands on one leg forever. In this language, like a large animal alphabet, or in some of the first philosophic certainties of men, as the child learns A for ass, or B for bull, or C for cow, so man has learnt here to connect the simpler and stronger creatures with the simpler and stronger truths. That a flowing stream cannot befoul its own fountain, and that anyone who says it does is a tyrant and a liar. That a mouse is too weak to fight a lion, but too strong for the cords that can hold a lion. That a fox, who gets most out of a flat dish, may easily get least out of a deep dish. That the crow, whom the gods forbid to sing, the gods nevertheless provide with cheese. That when the goat insults from a mountain top, it is not the goat that insults, but the mountain. All these are deep truths, deeply graven on the rocks, wherever men have passed. It matters nothing how old they are, or how new. They are the alphabet of humanity, which, like so many forms of primitive picture writing, employs any living symbol in preference to man. These ancient and universal tales are all of animals. As the latest discoveries in the oldest prehistoric caverns are all of animals. Man, in his simpler states, always felt that he himself was something too mysterious to be drawn. But the legend he carved under these cruder symbols was everywhere the same. And whether fables began with Aesop or began with Adam, whether they were German or medieval, as Reynard the Fox or as French and Renaissance as La Fontaine, the upshot is everywhere essentially the same. That superiority is always insolent, because it is always accidental, that pride goes before a fall, and that there is such a thing as being too clever by half. You will not find any other legend but this written upon the rocks by any hand of man. There is every type and time of fable, but there is only one moral to the fable, because there is only one moral to everything. End of Introduction